Hi, everybody, and welcome to Kosha's Corner. I'm really thrilled to bring you today's episode. We cover so many topics in this show. Dr. Nzinga Harrison joins me, and she's a well-respected physician and educator. She's an MD, the chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health, a value-based provider of compassionate, comprehensive outpatient addiction treatment. She is just you'll fall in love with her. (laughs) We talk about the biology of stress, the neurobiology of stress. We talk about how compassion is absolutely necessary for your healing. We talk about what to do with all the feelings that you may be having. This is such a heartwarming and inspiring episode. Dr. Harrison has written and presented several articles and workshops on the medical aspects of addiction and other psychiatric disorders, and has consulted on the same topics both nationally and internationally. Despite her credentials, she prides herself on being a regular old person who loves regular old people. She'll tell you that the most important accomplishment of her life is her husband and her two teenage sons. And another thing we talk about on this show with absolutely no shame and no judgment is asking you very gently, do you have a bit of an addiction to something or to someone you love? The whole episode isn't about addiction. We cover a lot of topics, like I said, but Nzinga just really presents some questions in such a loving way. I think that you're going to feel like this episode is a big old hug and you're really going to enjoy it. You can learn more about Nzinga Harrison going to the links in the show notes. Enjoy everybody. I can't wait for you to just soak this episode in. Nzinga, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Christine. Glad to be here. Well, I am really thrilled and grateful to talk to you for so many reasons, especially since you're an MD specializing in psychiatry and you have an incredible experience in mental health, psychiatric disorders, and just really helping people with compassion and reducing stigma. And I know this year with COVID and lockdown and everything else that has happened this year, you know, 2020... (laughs) vision gave us clarity Uh about a lot of things (laughs) about, you know, just in a lot of ways, how unhealthy we are, both in our systems and structures, our physical and mental and emotional health. And so many people are dealing with depression when they never have before, Mm -hmm. or maybe they were leaning towards it and they're really deep in it. Anxiety's gone up, addiction's Uh gone up. So I wanted to start there. What has been, you know, what have you seen really happened this year in terms of our mental and emotional health as a collective? Sure. Everyone has said 2020 was unprecedented. And that's the understatement of 2020. When we look at there's this concept I've been teaching about called the syndemic. And a syndemic is when you have concurrent or consecutive epidemics. And so we already were in the midst of an addiction epidemic for the last several decades in this country with the opioid epidemic coming to the forefront of that in the last few years. And then the COVID pandemic came and layered on top of that. And then George Floyd was um, killed by the police and the worldwide protest and racial unrest and kind of collective awakening to the pain of racism Um, layered on top of that. And so it was just like at a time where COVID had already ripped all of our normal routines and peaked our anxieties and our fears and 
had our loved ones getting sick and dying without us being able to to get to them. And just at a time when our resources were already incredibly low, um, Mm. more stressors just kept coming. And so, like you said in your intro, I'm chief medical officer and co-founder of an organization called Eleanor Health, and we take care of people uh, affected by addiction and people with depression and anxiety. And we just saw a spike that was, I guess, consistent with what the rest of the country saw, a spike in stress, a spike in depression, a spike in anxiety, a spike in alcohol use. I think I saw a statistic that said alcohol sales in the U.S. were Mm -hmm. up 55%. Yep. We saw a spike in other drug use, but then also in pain pills and sleeping pills and physical health conditions because we're all one brain and body. Um, And so it's just to say it has been a trying year Mm. for people doesn't fully capture. Yeah what people have been through. But I think it's also important to shine the other side of that coin is that people have been through it. And so we can't forget the resilience and the ability to survive and navigate really just atrocious, stressful things. Yeah. And what I noticed, and I'd love your insight on this, is this year triggered, there was what happened this year. And then it seemed to trigger a lot of people's trauma from the past, like maybe things that they could keep at bay or, or keep under the rug. Uh, it, it just activated a lot of people. Can you speak a little bit to that about how this year, even if people thought they were doing okay, maybe all of a sudden something that happened to them when they were five or 10 or 15 just rushed to the surface? Yeah, absolutely. So we're all carrying around every experience that we've ever had. Um, And so like these pathways in our brains get burned by these experiences and they don't go away. They're just not necessarily on the surface. In the U.S., we lead kind of culturally a pretty stressful, stretched thin type of existence. That's the predominant Mm -hmm. culture of the U.S. We get rewarded for it. It's like the busier you are, the better you are. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, right? And so- when we're functioning kind of already at the bounds of our emotional capacity, then sometimes it only takes a little trigger to really remove the the glue that's holding those past experiences mm-hmm. at bay. And here we had massive triggers. So one of the ways our brains makes us feel safe is through routine and being able to know what's coming next Mm. and having expectations and having those expectations met. And so when we had just a complete removal of our routine, so from one week to the next week, I was dropping my get up at 730, make breakfast for the kids, drop them off at school, come home, do yoga, go into meetings and work all day go pick the kids up from school, take them to extracurriculars, come home, spend time with my husband, go to sleep. That was my routine. My brain knew exactly what each day was going to bring in those buckets. And one day it was, the kids are not going back to school on Monday. Hmm. And it was, you're not going into the office. I was traveling a lot for my job. You're not going to the airport. And it was, we don't know when things will get better. And by the way, there's a virus we don't necessarily know anything about, except that it is killing people left and right. And so not only was there a real danger, but 
those things that we use to tether our brains, those routines, those expectations, um, those predictable parts of our lives were also ripped. And so that created a huge chasm, which then makes your brain say we are in the most dangerous of dangerous situations. Not only is there a real and present threat, we don't even have our routines to fall back on. And when you tap that part of the brain, that real and present danger, it brings up those other experiences Mm -hmm. in your life where you had that same emotional space or that same emotional response. And so it may have been something that happened to you at five years old, eight years old, 15 years old, and now you're 60. You haven't even been thinking about it at all. But that real and present threat with lack of routine triggers your brain. When have I been through this before? And all of those memories and traumas can start flooding back. And it's overwhelming. It's yes. overwhelming for people. Yes. And I think that it's something that isn't, it's not taught. I wish that in school we were taught how to deal with sadness, mm-hmm. grief, trauma, mm-hmm. anxiety. We really don't know. We know how to operate our iPhone better than we know how to operate our emotions and deal with trauma and triggers. So for people, I think so many people are relating to this and they're going, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. No wonder. Because I've noticed that a lot of people are judging themselves. They're like, why am mm-hmm. I, why can't I deal with this? Why am mm-hmm. I not more resilient? Can you talk a little bit about, and don't worry, everybody, we'll get to what do we do about this and how do we <laughs> handle the triggers? We'll get there. But can you talk first a little bit about what self-judgment does when we're in a triggered state, you know, when we have a trauma response and when we're in that amygdala fight flight part of our brain, how does judging ourselves make it even worse? Yes. So this is my thesis in life Mm -hmm. and at work is that compassion is absolutely required for health. Yes. Compassion, relationships and connection neurobiologically. So I I think I've never, ever been in an interview where I didn't talk about neurobiology. So if you'll just allow me. I love it. I love it. Because I heard you say fight or flight and amygdala and Mm -hmm. then you triggered me. (laughs) (laughs) You triggered me to talk about neurobiology. I love it. If we talk about the pathway in our brain that's responsible for survival, it's, it's the dopamine pathway, also known as the motivation pathway. And that motivation pathway is the motivation as an individual to survive and as a species to survive. And the natural determinants, like just in regular life, that give us dopamine are food, water, sex, and nurturing. Mm. Nurturing, which compassion plus relationships equals nurturing. It is one of the basic neurobiologically absolutely necessary determinants for survival. I want to drive that in for people, Mm -hmm. food, water, sex, nurturing. And so when you think about when you have a person who is in their most devastated state, they are hurting the most. They are crying out the most. They, what do they need? Compassion. Yep. Embrace, physical touch, kind words, warm arms. That's what they need. We have the knee jerk to do that for other people, but at least here in the predominant, you know, space in the United States, we get trained out of doing that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you're two years old and you hurt yourself and you're crying and you say, Oh, big girls don't cry. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. From the from the very beginning, we get trained that our emotions are too dangerous to deal with and or not worthy of being deal with, dealt with. Yep. And the complete opposite is true. So when your your routines have been snatched by COVID, you're afraid because we have this virus running rampant and it feels like we're in a zombie movie and we don't know what's going to happen next. You've lost your routines. You're worried about your loved ones. You're physically isolated. And then you judge yourself for feeling depressed or you judge yourself for feeling anxious or you judge yourself for feeling overwhelmed or you judge yourself for drinking a little more or not being able to sleep. That makes it worse. It is the most dangerous thing we can do because what we know we need for survival in that moment is compassion. And so it's learning how to direct the same compassion we would direct at others towards ourselves in those moments. I love that you're talking about this because I think that we, when we look to anxiety, depression, overwhelm, we look to something to fix it. We look to a a pill or let's numb ourselves or distract ourselves with alcohol or Netflix or keeping busy or caring for other people. And we forget about how certain emotions have healing frequencies mm-hmm. and you can measure those. I just got back from Dr. Joe Dispenza's week-long advanced retreat. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he has measured through brain scans, through heart monitors, the frequency of emotions like love and compassion and what it does to the brain and what it does to the heart rate and what yes. it does to the immune system. Yeah. And here we are in a time when, you know, we need our immune system and so many people are in this stressful state and aren't, you know, either aren't making the time or can't seem to access those higher frequency emotions like love and compassion. So I love, I love that you are a medical doctor and it also sounds like you're a light worker, you're a heart centered (laughs) healer. And I, I love how you really stand in both worlds. Could you explain a little bit for people how they access compassion and how we can turn that inward and what that does to our brain. Yes. So I think the first is we are born knowing empathy Um, and very, very young, young, young kids. It is, it is biologically wired in us. And in many ways we train ourselves out of it. Um, through our cultural processes. Mm-hmm. And so if you like, let me just divide the brain into two parts. So this is like the deep brain where our emotions and our impulses are. And then the thinking brain, which is like your your cortex right under your forehead, where, quote, higher order thinking and impulse control is, then we get trained to value thinking more than feeling. Mm. Yep. And part of the problem with feelings of depression and anxiety is that we're not born knowing how to respond to those in a quote unquote socially acceptable way. So infants, when they have any sense of discomfort, like they cry out and they scream and somebody comes and attends to their needs. But at some point past like three or four years old, you can't get away with it anymore. Mm. And so to what you said earlier about how you wished we were teaching this in schools, I agree with you, because what happens when then we don't learn how to 
navigate a depressed feeling or an anxious feeling or an overwhelmed feeling is that those are also being transmitted through the same system, fight or flight, that tells us about danger. And we start to interpret those feelings themselves as somehow threatening us or being dangerous to us, threatening our survival, rather than training that thinking brain to recognize and accept, I'm moving into mindfulness here, accept, I feel depressed. Mm -hmm. Don't judge it. It just, it is what it is. I feel depressed. I will let myself feel this because I know it's not so dangerous that it's going to end my survival. Mm -hmm. I can feel this. I can feel this and I can survive and I can be in this moment. And then when you can be in that moment and you can take that mindfulness and just accept the, the feeling that you're having, that creates space in your thinking brain to be able to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. So the very, very first step is to just, one, recognize what it feels like. So I do these um, workshops with folks where I'm just like, how do you know when you're depressed? And most people have no idea. It's like, how do you know when you're anxious? And most people have no idea that when they're biting people's heads off at work, it's yep. because they're anxious about yep. something, Yep. Mm-hmm. right? Most people have no idea that when they don't feel like cooking dinner is because they're sad about something. And so the first is just like, what, knowing myself, allowing myself to take the risk to know what it feels like, and then allowing myself to feel that so that I can then create space for how to respond to it. What we like to do is just make a plan and squash it out without feeling it, and it doesn't work. Let's solve it with our analytical mind. Solve it with our analytical mind, and you have to feel the feelings. You you do. I, I mean, my listeners, a lot of them know my story. I was put on antidepressants at 11 mm-hmm. and got off of them at 30, and it took me about two years to get off of them, and a big, big piece of it was I... I had a lot of anger too that was suppressed and I was hitting a pillow and I'm angry because, and I'm sad because, and giving myself an adult version of a temper tantrum, Mm -hmm. sometimes daily. Mm -hmm. And a a big part of moving through my depression was accepting that I couldn't be attached to getting rid of it, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I had to accept, I might deal with this the rest of my life and that's okay. I'm going to love myself anyway. And, And that was the opening to... You know, acceptance is, and I was just, I I taught a New Year's workshop and that was one of the things I talked about because acceptance from my point of view is the doorway. It's the gateway Uh emotion Uh to those higher frequency emotions like love and compassion. So for people that have trouble, what I'm hearing you say is for people that may have trouble getting right to compassion or right to love, start with acceptance. That's often the gateway into that. Absolutely. And can I tweak what you said just a little bit? Please, please. And it's your own story. So if I can't make this tweak, you'd be like, and Zynga, fall back. (laughs) And I will fall back. Okay. You said, I I will love myself anyway. Mm. And what I want people to get to is I will love myself because Mm. not anyway. Mm, I love that distinction. I love that. Because, right? Like, Yes. I just read this book and I don't know if you curse on here, so I'll send you can. You can. can. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. I I think the name of the book is, um, everything's fucked. Mm -hmm. A book about hope. Mm. And isn't that, isn't that so good? So good. The premise of the book is like, there will be pain and heartache 
and suffering and depression and anxiety, and I will experience it and I will be overwhelmed and I will make decisions that are not in my best interest. And sometimes I will fall down and F up, but I don't have to struggle. I can accept those moments and I can navigate those moments and I can love myself for having those, for Mm -hmm. being who I am for feeling emotions the way I feel emotions. And so I try to get people away from, even though I am this, I will love myself anyway. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, love yourself because Mm, I love that. I love that. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um, And I, I see how that I love myself anywhere. There's a judgment in there. There's a little it's sneaky judgment. judgment. It's mm-hmm. sneaky. It's mm-hmm. little and sneaky, but it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Massive. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, what happens chemically to us with depression and anxiety. And I know medication is a it's, a, it's a, either a temporary or permanent solution for a lot of people. And there are some things we can do before we get there. So will you speak a little bit about what depression and anxiety does to us chemically and what are some things we can do to maybe shift that brain chemistry? So as we're adding in more acceptance and compassion and and non-judgment and forgiving ourselves when we do judge, what else can we be doing that, that helps our mental health? Yeah, definitely. So I want people to think about this exactly the same way you think about high blood pressure or diabetes. You, because there's a whole spectrum. One Depression can be difficult um, to tease out because depression is a normal emotion that will be part of all of our lives. And then there is like a depressive syndrome that is impacting a person's ability to function and falls into over into what we would call like a depressive disorder. It's impacting your functioning. We get so trained out of emotions that a lot of times what is normal depression, normal grief, normal response to stressors will get um, pathologized and turned into a disorder when it's actually like normal depression, stress, anxiety that we need to address with support system and mindfulness Mm -hmm. and acceptance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it the way you think about high blood pressure, high blood pressure, when you first go to your primary care doctor and they say, uh, one, we're looking for it proactively. So every time you go see a doctor, we're taking your blood pressure because that's how important your blood pressure is to us. It's Mm. vital. The same is true about our emotions. And so I want us to create this space where we can be proactively looking for any difficulty with our emotions, anything that's impacting our functioning. When you first get that, oh, your blood pressure is just um, moderately elevated. Let's try to address this with lifestyle stress reduction, healthy eating, exercise. That's how we approach high blood pressure. That's how we should approach every illness. If we're at mild to moderate, then we try to approach it with depression included without medications, but we have to get over the stigma of therapy because the lifestyle interventions that we have, healthy living, sleep, hydration, stress reduction, therapy for depression, and anxiety and other mental health conditions. When you try every one of those interventions that you have at your um, disposal, that you have access to, and your blood pressure doesn't respond, then we think about medication. Same concept. You try all of those 
that you have access to and your depression, anxiety, other uh, mental health symptoms doesn't respond. Now we're talking about medications. And so if we think about that, the reason is because we think about chemically, you said what's happening in your brain, it's happening through your brain and your body. And there are these uh, chemicals that send messages through our brain and our bodies. And so we call them neurotransmitters, neuro because it's in your neurological system, which is brain and spinal cord transmitters because they are sending messages and the neurotransmitters that are most involved in our mood and our thinking and our behaviors, and this is not all of them, these are just the most common ones, are serotonin. So you've probably heard of serotonin. Mm -hmm. It is like your, I call it the Zen molecule. Serotonin's message is like, you know what? You're all good. Things are okay. We're fine. We're fulfilled by life. That's serotonin. You have norepinephrine, which is your anxiety molecule. It's basically adrenaline. That's your fight or flight. That keeps you alive in the face of acute threat. And you have dopamine, which is your motivation to survive molecule, which is telling you we need this to survive. Food, water, sex, nurturing, and plenty of other synthetic uh, drivers of dopamine like drugs, alcohol, gambling. But the message is you need it to survive. And so when we look at depression, it can be any abnormality among those neurotransmitters as well as a myriad of other chemicals. But these are the big ones. But what we know we need to do is send more of that serotonin message. So some people, if depression runs in your family, you are biologically at higher risk for some messaging in your serotonin system that is not adequately able to send that message. Relax. We got this. Things are cool. We're fulfilled. And so depression and anxiety, you'll be at higher risk. It may be that we can increase your serotonin. Here are some things that increase serotonin. Hugs, warm baths, Mm. orgasms, long walks, sunshine, Mm. stress reduction. All of these make the serotonin message more available to your brain. Healthy eating. Meditation. Meditation. Mm. Mindfulness. All of these things make more serotonin message available to your brain. And it could be by any number of ways. It could actually be by manufacturing more serotonin, or it could be by having the serotonin that your brain and Um, manufacturers that it sends throughout your brain and your body. It could be having it stick around longer. So more of the message is sent. It could be by the the cells that are receiving the serotonin being more able to interpret that message. There's a lot of different ways and it's neurobiologically complicated. Um, And norepinephrine and dopamine are involved in this also. And so if I have a person who has like a really dense, hopeless type of depression, and coupled with a really like hypervigilant type of anxiety, that says to me, I need to work on the serotonin message. I also need to work on the norepinephrine message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and when you get to a depression that is like, and my kids would be better off without me, or I don't see value, or I can't, this is dopamine, right? And yes. I tell people, Your brain is like a house. You can go in the front door, you can go in the back door, you're still in the house. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we go in the serotonin door, sometimes we go in the dopamine door, sometimes we go in the norepinephrine door, sometimes we go in another door. What I know is, whether that's with medication or not, 
I cannot forget the rest of what I call that magic formula. Mm, yeah. So the magic formula is biological, it's psychological, it's social, cultural, and political. And if we're not intervening in all five of those buckets, I can pour Prozac in, down your throat until the cows come home. And if you are in a relationship that is denigrating and devaluing, Prozac's not going to be able to get over that home. That's right. That's right. And that's what I found in my journey with medication. It, there were, I guess it helped in, in some ways, but when I realized it wasn't the magic pill, I was like, I think it's time for me to try something else. And I'm not, I have no judgment on people that do medication. I know it's necessary in so many ways, but I love that you're looking at this very holistically, that it's not. And I think that's one of the things we need to get away from, especially in our medical society is you have a problem, take a pill. You have a problem, I'll prescribe this. There's so much more we can be looking at. And, And I'm curious too, if you were in charge of, We'll just start with our country right now. I thought you were going to say the universe. <laughs> I was ready. I was like, bring it. Okay, okay. We'll go there since you're ready. If you were in charge of the universe and you had some policies to put in place in terms of how we're dealing with COVID, how we're dealing with uh, everything that's been exposed. You mentioned George Floyd and the racial injustice. And we just had the thing of the Capitol last week in the election. Yes. And it's just been like, boom, 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 boom. Oh, it's, a, it's a movie that just has sequel after sequel after sequel. <laughs> and, and it's a movie. We don't want sequels. I know. Like, no, I'm like, no. make it stop. <laughs> make it stop. Let me walk out of the theater. Uh, so if you were in charge, what were what would be some some policies or advice that you'd put into place to help people, you know, or or just a message that you could broadcast to the world? Because one of I'll give you time to think about this. One of my pet peeves is we have so many people listening right now. And we're not teaching people how to be healthy. Uh-huh. We're teaching people how to be scared. Uh-huh. And that just makes their health worse. And I will be honest, that tr- that gets me going because yeah. I'm like, we have this, everybody's listening. Everybody's paying attention. And if you told people, look, you can really decrease your chances of getting this if you get in the yeah. sun and you yeah. exercise and you have yeah. hugs and you meditate and you're kinder and you don't judge and you realize we're all one. And I'm just like, oh, this is such a missed opportunity. So I'm curious, what would you, if you you were master of the universe. What were some things you'd put in place to really help people through this time? Yes. And my new appointed position as MU. (laughs) So it's so funny, Christine, I'm the um, treasurer of the parent teacher student association, PTSA at the high school where my kids are ninth and 10th graders. Mm. Uh, It has been purely virtual. None of us have seen each other since March, Mm. but we had a meeting last night and I gave a um, COVID community update. And it was exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. It was empowering yourself to reduce your risk to almost as close to near zero as you can of getting COVID. And it started with empathy, compassion, healthy eating, sleeping, hydrating, hugging the people that you live with that you don't have to be social distance from, and then all of the rest of the medical. And so if I were MU, The very first thing is that I would make mindfulness and meditation and managing emotions um, mandatory starting in preschool. Mm. Mm. It is more important than math. And I love math. It is more important than science. I'm a physician. So obviously it is more important than world history. And I'm an activist. So I appreciate the importance of history. 
mindfulness, meditation, and being able to navigate your emotions is the most important skill we could possibly have as humans. Yeah. And if we raised a generation of kids where we made that as important as their grades, we would see the world change. We would because we would we wouldn't have wars because we wouldn't be so angry at each other. We wouldn't have division. We wouldn't have people in power that are corrupt because they haven't dealt with their own shadow and demons and all of those types of things. So I, I 1000% um, support that. And if I could vote for you to be master of the universe, I would absolutely run your campaign. (laughs) My campaign starts today. My campaign director is Dr. Christine. I love it. I love it. And and, the next thing mm -hmm. I would do is universal screening for depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety is so common. It is the exception that a person has not experienced truly what it means to grieve. And what a depressive disorder is, is that dense sense of grieving over a prolonged period of time that impacts your functioning. So I would do Mm. universal screening starting in preschool, because yes, we have little people, unfortunately, that are having experiences that are already resulting in depression and anxiety by four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And I would not respond to that by increasing the number of child psychiatrists to prescribe. This is no pejorative against my child psychiatrist, because y'all know I love y'all. I would do that by increasing the number of therapists and counselors for Mm -hmm. kids. Mm The other thing I would do is start universal screening for substance use Mm. at like eight years old. We need to be having real conversations and educating our kids about their risks. So like in my family, my family history is stacked with substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. I started talking to my kids at three years old. Three Mm. years old, you have a biological risk. My kids were doing yoga from the time they were two. They were doing kitty meditation videos from the time they were two. We Mm. have our emotion talks, like talk to me about your emotions. Both of my kids have seen therapists on and off. And like, I was so proud. My um, oldest son, who is now 15, he'll be 16 in a couple of months, when he was 12, came to me and said, Mom, I think I should go see Dr. Mahan, which is a therapist that did psychological testing on him. I'm having some real stress at school and I could use her perspective on how to do it. And I was like, my job here is done. (laughs) I would be so proud in that moment. Wow. So proud because the job that was done was lowering the bar on stigma Mm. enough that just like he would come to me and say, hey, mom, like I have a sore throat. Can I go see Dr. Willingham, who's his pediatrician? He's like, I'm stressed out. I need some support. Can I go see Dr. Mahan, who's my psychologist? Mm. Like we need to lower the bar. And so I would say from a policy perspective, the more people recognize that this is the rule, not the exception, that you feel this way is the rule, mm-hmm. not the exception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stigma stops so many people from getting help. Stops so many people. We have to get away from it. I posted on my personal Facebook page the other day. I was like super overwhelmed at work. And I was like, I was like, I don't even know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but I have this feeling of angst. And all I want to do is like take a hot shower, 
get some macaroni and cheese and dessert and climb in the bed. Yep. (laughs) Been there. And you know why? Because food, dopamine. Yes. Hot bath, serotonin, right? My brain was telling me and I couldn't put my finger. I had no idea what was making me anxious. And I just made it my Facebook status. I have no idea, but I have a sense of anxiety that I can't put my finger on. And like, I just feel like I need to check out hundreds of comments, Christine. Mm. Mm. And, and, and the comments at first were like, I feel it. I feel it. I'm having the same thing. I'm having the same thing. And then the comments turned into, wow, I'm sorry that all of you are feeling this way, but it's making me feel so much better <laughs> yeah. that I'm not by myself. And so we send this idea, like you don't have it all together. You're the only one going through that. And it couldn't be further from the truth. And it undermines that basic biological need to be connected and understood. Mm, mm, I love that because I know that feeling alone is a major indicator of, well, it lowers all of those those chemicals that we need. You got it. And Except norepinephrine, mm, which it shoots through the roof. And that's anxiety. That's anxiety. Yeah. That's fear. That's hypervigilance. That's your heart racing. That's your blood pressure going up. That's you worrying and obsessing over something. Mm. Mm, which then makes it really hard to think and really hard to go yeah. and do those things. And that's why I know a lot of people experience, they, they know they should, they know, okay, well, meditation would probably be good for me, but the macaroni and cheese and Netflix is, it feels easier. That's right. It feels easier. So how can people, what, what are some tips that you have to get over that hump? Is it like, all right, tonight, macaroni and cheese, but tomorrow I'm going to give myself meditation? Do we, do, do we allow ourselves to have those sort of quick fix more, you know, give me that quick hit, quick hit of dopamine or serotonin. And then maybe the next day, try the meditation and a walk in the sunshine. Like how do we c- close that gap? Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen that, um, that meme, but it's the little girl and she's like, why not both? Mm. And so I think this is one of those, um, situations where we have to give ourselves some grace because this, I will say again, is an unprecedented level of stress. None of, nobody who is our, nobody who is alive right now, except maybe our octogenarians and higher have been through a period of like countrywide stress like this. Mm. And so um, this is unprecedented. And so we have to give ourselves some grace. That's going back to the conversation you and I had earlier about compassion and acceptance. But part of it is exercising the muscle. So you said earlier, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, part of our medical culture that is super broken is this idea of take a pill and fix it. Mm. I am going on record as a double board certified physician certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine. I'm flossing my credentials on y'all right before <laughs> I say this, which is who has been practicing for two decades. Okay. All, all the street cred. There is no magic pill, mm. period, period. There is no pill that in absentia all by itself can fix our emotions. And we wouldn't want there to be, that's a sci-fi film waiting to happen. We have to be able to live life. And so we have to exercise the muscle. Part of the reason we go for macaroni and cheese and Netflix is because we also don't have to face the emotion. 
Mm. And part of the reason people shy away from meditation is one, they don't know how much evidence, medical, scientific, that there is about the benefits of meditation and how incredibly beneficial it is for mental and physical health. But two, because if I say I need to medicate, then I'm admitting that I don't have control of my emotions. Mm. Mm. And so when I say exercise the muscle, I mean, right now, today, do a one minute meditation. There are a bajillion apps. You can Google right now, one minute meditation. You won't be able to make it through it because meditation is a muscle that you have to build. It is okay. One minute, just do one minute every day. Even if you feel great today, one minute. If you have an Apple watch, that one minute when it says, do you want to breathe for a minute? Stop saying no, say yes. Okay. Mm. One minute. And as you build that muscle, then when you really need it during a Netflix and mac and cheese moment, you'll have it to use. But you have to start using it outside of the painful period so that you have it when you need it and so that you don't only attach negative feelings to meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's huge. That's one minute. That's all I'm asking. Everybody who's listening, just do one minute every single day. You have one minute. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is really taking our power back because if we yes. even look at COVID, I think a lot of people are just waiting for vaccine or for it to be gone or, and, and it's like, we're, we have to take our power back too and be empowered yes. and go, no one, I can't put anyone in charge of my health. I have to really take charge of my mental and emotional health. And maybe there's some things on my calendar I need to cancel. Maybe I need to confront that people pleaser in me and say no to some things so I can make some time for myself. Maybe I need to turn off the news and go inside for my answers in terms of the guidance. Maybe I need to look at the things that increase my stress in my life, whether, like I said, it's watching the news or a certain relationship in my life or obligations that I have or whatever it is and and really, you know, take power. Because I think that, like you said earlier, you know, this past year has been unprecedented and there's so many things that feel out of our control mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look at the ways where we can take control back and we can take power back because one of my biggest life lessons, and I, I like knowing and I like certainty and I like mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest life lessons is that I really don't have it hundred percent, especially on the things outside of me. But where I do have so much power and where I do have, for lack of a better word, control is my internal state in my relationship with myself. And as hard as it is sometimes, when I make that a priority, everything on the outside gets a lot easier as well. Yes. You have taken me to church. Amen (laughs) and hallelujah. Mm -hmm. It's so true. We feel, and that's part of the danger, not having control and feeling powerless and not have feeling like I have the information I need to make the best decisions that I can make for me and the people that I love, all of that transmits a sense of danger mm. in our brains. And so we can take back control of that. Mm. Exactly the things that you said. The very, very, I mean, the first step is the first step for a reason, and it doesn't only apply to AA. The first step is recognizing I had become powerless. Mm. that's the first step because then that empowers you to take your power back. If you don't even recognize or accept that you have, 
either lost your power, given it away, had your power taken from you. It happens in a number of different ways. Once you accept that, you empower yourself to say, okay, and so how do I get it back? Mm. I, I would love to shift in, in your, we're setting this up. So I'd love to shift a little bit to addiction. Uh, I, I have a feeling there may be some people listening that may be wondering if they have a little bit of an addiction issue, mm-hmm. that maybe they were sort of teetering and then this year pushed them over the edge and they don't know, or they're maybe concerned about a loved one. So would you be able to speak to kind of how do you know when it is an addiction and and what do you do? What's the first step? Yeah, definitely. So the first concept I want to talk through is that um, there are addictions to substances and there are addictions to things that are not substances. So the easiest one for people to understand that's not a substance is usually gambling. Um, but gambling, sex, there are definitely addictions to exercise, definitely addictions to video games and technology. Um, on the other side, alcohol, marijuana, sleeping pills, anxiety pills, you name it. And so the definition of addiction is continuing fill in the blank, whatever that is, despite negative consequences. So it has begun to impair your functioning in any number of ways. And what's really important is that when we think about addiction, we have been trained into the image of the most severe addiction, which makes us miss our opportunity to intervene earlier when we're looking at a mild or a moderate addiction. Mm. And so I like to point people to a very easy scale. It's called the CAGE AID, C-A-G-E dash A-I-D. And all of us learn it in medical school as a way to screen for alcohol. The AID is adapted to include other drugs. And I'm going to pull it out even further to say you can apply this to any behavior in your life that you're a little bit worried about. The first thing I tell people is if you're asking the question, yes, it's a problem. Mm. Period. Mm. It may Mm. be a mild problem and it may not meet my diagnostic criteria for me to diagnose you with a substance use disorder or other addiction. But if you're asking the question, yes, it is a problem. Mm. And the reason I want to say that so clearly is because I just gave you the opportunity to take your power back over whatever we are talking about. We get so afraid to get, quote, diagnosed or labeled with a problem that we close our eyes to it and we let it get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and out of control. And then it either kills us quickly or kills us slowly. Either way, it kills us. Mm. And so to take our power back, we have to be able to say, you know what, if I ask myself, am I drinking too much? The answer is yes. And your too much may not be the same as somebody else's too much. But as soon as you ask yourself that question, I want you to take your power back and start exactly what Christine said earlier. What in my life is driving this and what can I change and what can I do about it? So the cage age is four questions. C, have you ever thought about cutting back? And I should say there are four questions. If you answer yes to one of these questions, 77% of the time that predicts that there is a diagnosable addiction. Mm. Okay. Overwhelmingly seven out of 10, 7.7 out of 10 times. So I'll round that eight to be eight out of 10 times. The other two times there is not an addiction I would diagnose, but there most certainly is an opportunity that I would seize. Mm. So one, have you ever thought about cutting back Two, a, 
So that was C for cutback. A, annoyed. Have you ever been annoyed when somebody else mentioned to you that they were concerned about whatever it is we're talking about? G, guilty. Have you ever felt guilty about whatever it is we're talking about? So you used to drink a glass of wine before bed. You never thought twice about it. It was amazing. No big deal. Now you're drinking a bottle of wine. And when you get to that third glass, you feel a little twinge of guilt. That's a G. Would shame count there too? Guilt or shame? shame? Mm -hmm. Guilt or shame, Mm -hmm. for sure. Shame, I guess, just didn't fit in the acronym, but yes. (laughs) And then E, eye opener. So this scale was developed specifically for alcohol. And the eye opener was to try to capture people that wake up first thing in the morning with a, a light alcohol withdrawal and they need to drink to take the edge off. The way we apply it to non-alcohol substances or non-substance behaviors is do you wake up first thing in the morning thinking about this? Uh. Okay. So if you answer yes to C, A, G, or E, have you ever thought maybe I should cut back? Have you ever felt annoyed when somebody else mentioned it to you? Did you ever feel guilt or shame about whatever it is we're talking about? Have you ever had that eye-opening experience where you woke up first thing in the morning and you felt a need for whatever we're talking about? If you answered one question, yes, 77% chance that you meet diagnostic criteria for an addiction. Mm -hmm. This is giving you your power. Scale yourself. If you score one, get to work, finding some support. There's no shame. There is no stigma. At this period of time, one in six people has used an illicit drug in the last week. One in five people is binge drinking, meaning more than four to five drinks in one setting. One in 10 people, sorry, one in 11 has seriously considered suicide in the last month. Mm. That is everybody. You are not alone. There is no shame. There is no stigma. There is only an opportunity to grab your power and put it to work. But first, this is our buzzword for this whole episode, is acceptance. Yes. We accept you exactly as you are. We see you as you are. We hear you as you are. We accept you as you are. Accept yourself. Grab your power. And then we figure out next steps. Mm. Thank you for that. And everybody just take a deep breath because I know some of you that might have been, you know, what I love about how you share is it's confronting, it's truth, but there's so much love in your voice and so much compassion. And one thing I've learned is truth and love are allies. They go together and we can see the truth and admit the truth without shame without judgment. It's like we can love ourselves through the truth. And sometimes the truth isn't what we like and it's hard to admit, but if we can love ourselves through it, then there's so much less resistance and there's so many more opportunities to get help and get support. It's like, I really feel the universe meets us at our point of action and intention. Uh And if we're like, all right, like this is the truth. I accept it. I love myself through it. And I'm going to reach out. I'm going to, I'm going to get help because I realize one, I'm not alone. And two, I don't have to figure out what to do about it alone. Yes. Yes. And for the people that it may not be them, 
but it may be someone in their life that they love, that they care about, family member, a child. How do you confront or speak to someone that you may think has an addiction and you want to get them help, but you're so scared to speak to them about it? Yeah. So I think the first thing is I love you, period. And I'm coming to you because I'm concerned about you. And for people who are listening, I always say, throw it back on me and Christine and say, I was listening to Christine's podcast today. And there was a doctor on there and she told me about this cage aid. And I thought through it for you. And I came up with a score of three out of four. And that really scared me. Mm. Right? Like that's different from, you know, you're drinking too much and you need to stop. Yes. It's the, I mean, the same message, but it is like, I, the reason I'm concerned about you drinking so much is because I'm worried about you. Mm. And I'm scared. She mm-hmm. said, and I'm scared. Mm-hmm. And she said, we can take this as an opportunity to grab our power. And I want you to know that I am on your team. I'm on the same side of you. And we've been arguing over alcohol. Alcohol has been in the middle of us. And I don't want alcohol in the middle of us. I want me and you and alcohol over there. Yeah. And that's taking our power back too. And that's love. That's love. Because otherwise we're enabling, you know, we're, we're not, uh, well, maybe not always enabling, but we're, we're putting our own mental health at risk by not having the courage and the love to really say to someone, I'm scared and I love you. And I don't want this to get worse. I don't want to lose you or lose us over this. And That's exactly it. You're not bad. You're not wrong. I understand um, to the best of my ability. And let's let's get some help together. That's let's right. Get some help together. Yeah. That's right. And I usually tell people sometimes it helps to to like use a physical health metaphor because we don't pour nearly as much stigma on physical health as we do on mental health. And I tell people if I was afraid you had cancer, there's no way I wouldn't say something about it. And there's no way I wouldn't do everything I could possibly do to get you to the right place to get the support in place to figure out what we needed to do. Mm. This is the same thing. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about Eleanor Health and what you do there? Because I know that would be that could be a good resource for people. Yes. Yeah, so Eleanor Health, I'm chief medical officer and co-founder. We're um, a new company. So we started in 2019 and we take care of people who are affected by addiction So that same when I said, if you answer one out of four, it doesn't mean I'm going to diagnose you, but does mean that there's some support you can get in place. You can come to Eleanor Health for that support. Um, And we also support the loved ones and support system of people who have been affected by addiction, um, depression and anxiety. So uh, you can go to our website, EleanorHealth.com. Our foundational fundamental belief is that compassion and relationships create all opportunities. So every single interaction you have with Eleanor Health should be like a warm hug filled with compassion and -hmm. understanding. We see our, we call the people that we take care of community members, not patients, because you're not a diagnosis walking in our door. You're a human being walking in our door or popping on our camera during these COVID days. And so we care deeply for our people. We see our people. We hear our people. We feel our people. We recognize the seemingly unsurvivable things that our people have survived. Um, And so check us out, eleanorhealth.com. If we're in your state, 
we can join your team uh, to be part of your magic formula. Even if we're not in your state, we have free support groups that we point to the public. So we have a weekly support group for people who are concerned about their use, but not quite sure. We have people who are in early recovery and we have um, a support group for people who are the loved ones or support system. Mm. So check out the website, drop into any one of those groups. They're virtual, online, no commitment, just support. And mm. we would love to have you welcome us into your community if you think you need us. I love that community. That's so beautiful. Taking out the division between patient and doctor and expert and person that needs help. Yes, I love that. I love that. Human beings with the same inherent value. And I know I just rushed you, but the last thing I want to say is in recovery podcast. Mm. Um, I hope that people will listen. The same thesis that we have on Eleanor Health, the same concepts that Christine and I have been talking through for this last hour is the heart and soul of the in recovery podcast. It is unfiltered, evidence-based information that can empower you, but always with compassion first. And it's question and answer. So drop us a question. We answer them on air. Sometimes we actually bring people on air to talk with us. Sometimes we have other experts. We always have me. We always have compassion. Mm. Um, So I would love for people to listen. That's In Recovery by Mm. Lemonada Media. Mm, I love that. And we'll put links to that in the show notes. So I'll, Dr. Harrison and master of the universe that I've appointed. (laughs) Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the true healing work you do. You, you, you really embody the energy of a healer and a teacher. And I, we need more, more doctors and people in leadership position like you. So I acknowledge you. I thank you. Thank you so much for giving your time, your knowledge and your your compassion to everybody today. Thank you, Christine. I really enjoyed this time.